Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter, and joining me this week, we've got... Hello, I'm uh, Daniel Villar, uh, Daniel underscore A underscore Villar at Twitter, and I'm on the Executive Committee of Scientists for Labour. Hi, I'm Ben Fernando, I'm Ben Fernando, and then just the numeral two on Twitter, and I'm currently the Chair of Scientists for Labour. Fantastic. Uh, welcome to both of you uh, to the podcast. Uh, listeners, as you could probably surmise, this is going to be an episode talking to scientists for labour about scientists for labour, about science and labour, about COVID-19 and the interplay between science and politics. Um, so very excited to have these guys on to talk to us about all that sort of thing. Um, and we're going to jump straight into it because we have a lot of questions. Um, well, first off, um, could you could could you guys just explain a little bit about what the group scientists for labor is um i mean i suppose it's i suppose it's in the name but <laughs> what, what what kind of work um is it that you guys that you guys do yeah so we're a socialist society affiliated to the labor party and our aim is to promote uh, stem awareness so that's science technology engineering mathematics within the Labour Party, so trying to push the party to adopt more evidence-based policies, policies that will benefit education or industrial strategy relating to STEM, and then also trying to get more scientists, engineers, medics involved in politics within the Labour Party. So we've been going about 25 years now. Um, We have a few hundred members all across the country, drawn from all walks of STEM, And the thing that sort of brings us together is an interest in labour and getting labour to perhaps uh, consider sort of how science and evidence can play more of a role in the policies that we that we come up with and set. And obviously, um, this is particularly relevant now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, given the circumstances and quotation marks. Um, How has coronavirus impacted your the work of scientists for labor um whether that's in working practices or have you guys found that you've taken on a more substantive role um within uh sort of like advising the labor party for example and doing your campaigning work um how is overall how is how is coronavirus um, changed so things? scientists for labor's uh, work I, i'd say that scientists for labor has been doing more work in the past uh, seven weeks now, I think, uh, of the pandemic, than it has for quite a while. Uh, The bulk of it has been the daily briefings. Uh, So every day, Scientists for Labor uh, is coordinating a group of volunteers, which I'm part of, to write a daily briefing for labor politicians uh, in the House of Commons or Lords or MSPs or AMs, uh, detailing the latest science on COVID-19 and just ensure that Labor knows what's in the literature uh, before it has to filter through the popular science uh, press. There's also the longer reports that Scientists for Labor is working on, which are more in-depth syntheses of some of the information around uh, COVID-19 in order to ensure that politicians have a good grounding in the science of epidemics, of uh, epidemiology, and anything that might be relevant for COVID-19. So you mentioned the longer report there. Um, you guys published a uh, report uh, the other week called um, a Science-Based Socialist Response to COVID-19, uh, which we uh, publicised on our website. Um, 
just for people who don't know about the report and didn't read the article, um, would uh, you just be able to explain a little bit about what uh, what that report entails and what what a socialist response based in science uh, entails? Yeah, so I would bear in mind that this report um, was written in sort of early March, so most of the, the oh. science and the news in there is actually out of date now. Um, okay. but, but the main thing was that we thought we needed to think a little bit harder about what the role of the opposition should be in a crisis like this, because on the one hand, criticising the government is not appropriate if you don't have a better solution, as it were. So we can hold them to account, but necessarily suggesting they do things better without having any idea what that better is, is, is not constructive. But then sure. by the same token, just sort of letting things be and, and staying quiet and agreeing with everything that they've done is also not perhaps the most productive way to promote good science, good policy making, and thus an optimal sort of resolution to this crisis, whatever optimal might mean at this point. So it was, it was a bit of a synthesis of where we stood at the moment and what we thought that Labour should be pushing for. So, you know, again, to reiterate, six weeks ago was a very different time to now, but things that seemed like that they might be more at risk were um, the continuity of research into matters both COVID and associated, um, the capacity of healthcare, so both in terms of doing things like testing, but also in terms of critical care capacity. And then also the importance of doing sort of international comparative responses. So looking at what's worked and more importantly, perhaps what hasn't worked in other countries, and then using that as a basis for what we're going to or what we should be pushing for to happen here in the UK. And it, it sort of touched on a lot of different issues from the fundamental research to thinking about education and mental health, um, thinking about socioeconomics like sick pay, rent deferrals, access to food banks, and then also looking at perhaps what are some of the human rights implications that this might have. How can Labour best ensure that we're promoting good science and responsible science without undermining the government? Since the publication of that report and the the article, um, Keir Starmer's become leader of the Labour Party, and you mentioned the word constructive, and constructive has been the key buzzword for uh, his style of opposition. Uh, don't know yet whether it's going to last beyond the coronavirus crisis or whether it's specifically tailored for the coronavirus crisis, um, but constructive is the word. Um, have you found that uh, Labour's response to the government and criticism of the government has been uh, constructive in the uh, vision which you sort of laid out in that report? Or do you think there are still sort of rooms for improvement? Uh, yeah, so I think it's been described even by Dominic Raab today at Prime Minister's Questions as being constructive. And that's that's really important because it means that we're put in a position where we can be trusted to question understanding assumptions implementation without there being the sort of without there being the sort of political cloud hanging over the all with capital politically um, from the crisis so I think that there seems to have been a general feeling on both sides that Labour's taken a very pragmatic approach to trying to help the government through this crisis and I think the leadership have done a very good job of choosing areas where they're willing to um, sort of agree and support, whilst also picking out areas where it's perhaps important to question more thoroughly and more comprehensively, where they think the government has either been 
shall we say, a little bit lax or a little bit lay in the reporting of the facts, or indeed perhaps slightly negligent in some of the things that they've done. Thinking just um, somewhat hypothetically, um, beyond the pandemic, uh, politically, do, do you think that kind of uh, constructive approach is uh, will be useful to sort of continue um for the duration of Keir Starmer's premiership and uh, a sort of slightly different style to PMQs avoiding the political clout as you put it what do you what do you think well obviously that's more of a political question than a scientific one yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're, we're not i mean n- neither one of us are politicians or political strategists but when it comes to scientific questions obviously uh, there is a right answer and a wrong answer and i think that uh, a more scientific style of debate where you try to be more constructive could be useful uh, in matters where it is matters of facts and not of ideology necessarily. And hopefully, if other major, well, when other major science-based events come into the news and become important politically in the coming several years of this parliament, uh, the constructive style that Keir Starmer and his team has adopted towards those issues will continue. So I sort of find it interesting that you sort of clearly distinguish between uh, political strategy and, and science there. And it sort of leads into one of the other questions which I was um, uh, wanted to talk to you guys about, which is which is that distinction between science and politics, or um, perhaps uh, in some instances a lack of dis- distinction. So Scientists for Labour, it, it is a scientific group of course but but it is a clearly political group of course because you're affiliated with the Labour Party and it's about uh, working with Labour and promoting that socialist response to pandemics such as these as you said um, so with regards to your your guys work and your lives and your sort of ideological thinking to what extent do you see uh, there to be an overlap between your scientific careers and scientific lives and your and your political thinking um is there any overlap um you know to to what extent do they influence each other are they fairly distinct parts of your lives you sort of mentioned about in science there being a right and a wrong answer and uh in politics there's rarely does seem to be a right or a wrong answer but does um does having that sort of scientific routing help you to get a bit more clarity on some perhaps thorny issues sometimes or is you know what what, what how, how does that factor into your lives and thinking so for, for me at least i try to prevent my politics from influencing my science uh, but admittedly i study cr- cricket behavior so i don't think it really has much overlap there directly <laughs> uh yeah, so uh, I I'm I don't think that there's a particularly conservative or libertarian or communist view on cricket sexual behavior. So thankfully, that doesn't overlap. Cricket sexual behavior. Yes, yes. Uh, I I could go into <laughs> long rants about my research uh, as anyone who has shackled themselves onto post grad could. I'm sure. <laughs> when it comes to whether a scientific worldview affects uh, my political views, I do think that there are times where the political those with only a politics background you know allow arguments and style to be a bit more important than just pure facts uh, but at the same time the bread and butter of politics is you know value judgments it is you know what do you think society should look like what do you think is morally important and whatnot 
and there is no scientific test for that. I cannot design an experiment that says this is how society should be. Uh, so I, as valuable as science is for specific policies, and as useful as it is to know the science on many issues, I think that you know, pol political ideology isn't really formed by science, uh, for me at least. You sort of talked about value judgments there. Um, do you think science in itself can be and has been a value judgment? As in, do you think that... Um, what, what, what do you think about politicians and uh, people in the media or people who follow politi politics who emphasize that a government and politics should be fact-based and scientific and that sort of um ties in with something which we can talk about a bit later about um uh scientists who have gone on to become politicians like uh angela merkel or margaret thatcher for instance um what what, what is your, what is your general opinion of people who uh you take science as a value in itself for society i mean obviously I, i'm sympathetic uh, to that if only yeah, because I uh you know I, I it would be nice for research funding to be available uh, and for science to be valued uh, that that would be lovely but as much as i think that it would be useful for politics to be a bit more scientific and for there to be more people with uh, analytical mindsets in politics uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a good in and of itself. You know, I think that you can get a too clinical and too scientific uh, mindset when you look at human affairs. And part of politics is recognizing the non-analytical and non-quantifiable part of human life, which for many people is the part that is worth living. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with not being of a scientific mindset and being involved in politics, even though... I myself do value science and do want policies to be based on science, especially when it's directly relating to science. I mean, if, if, you're, if we're dealing with global warming or COVID-19, and instead of basing it on science, you're basing it on God knows what, then obviously that's ridiculous. But I can see other areas of government where you don't necessarily need the same scientific mindset or scientific training. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd pretty much agree with Daniel on this one in that obviously try and keep politics out of work though as ever i'm sure the the beliefs and values that you hold influence the the way in which you could try and conduct your job whether that be in research or anything else i'm i'm much happier to have the work mindset come into politics as it were because i i think you're right in the diversity of thinking and of background is always good. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a protected characteristic or, or indeed something else. And whilst politics is about making value judgments, having people who can make those value judgments based on different, shall we, cons shall we say, sort of parameterizations of values or different, different formulas in their mind for how to balance those values out is always a good thing because it gives you more diversity of thought and opinion and better responses to criticism than you otherwise would have. Um, and I think, you know, not only do you get a different set of perspectives if you if you have a scientific background that you bring into your politics, but it also perhaps means that, you know, in a world like today's where we're being bombarded with things that masquerade as evidence almost constantly, it can help to be able to dig a little bit deeper into the numbers or into the so-called facts and figure out 
what's legitimate and, and what's not. We wouldn't dream of having a conversation about housing without involving planners. So we should be very careful if we have conversations about healthcare, for example, or energy without involving scientists. In terms of value judgments, again, I'd agree with Daniel here, but I guess science can never tell you what the best thing to do is in politics. It can present you with a set of evidence that gives you a, a sort of position upon which you can draw judgment and you can take two people with the same evidence and a different set of values through which they evaluate that evidence and they'll come to different conclusions. So I think you're right to say that science in and of itself isn't a value judgment, but the questions that it poses in politics sometimes are. And of course, you know, science will also never give you a complete picture necessarily when you want it. And we've seen that, especially during the current crisis. So sometimes there is a value judgment, but a scientific one, if you want to decide which piece of evidence you think um, is, is legitimate and which one isn't. And that has to be influenced by a different set of values. But you're still making a judgment on the validity of that result. So it, it works both ways, I think. Having a scientific mindset you bring into politics, but also a political mindset in some sense that you take into science, uh, can be helpful if applied in a sort of consistent and sensible manner. That's all really interesting. I sort of think it, suppose it answers my uh, later question about um, uh, whether more scientists should go into politics, um, but the reason the reason why I was interested is because, as I as I said, uh, famous examples: Angela Merkel and uh, Margaret Thatcher, um, uh, chemists uh, before going into politics. Um, coincidentally, both um, two of the most uh, successful, um, objectively, politicians and world leaders um, with regards to their premierships and the length of their reigns um i don't know if there's a correlation there um and particularly with merkel um uh, something which we've seen a lot of is is germany has been lauded for its uh uh handling of covid19 how it's had uh, more cases in the uk uh, far far fewer deaths um and there was that viral video of um angela merkel explaining how the virus spreads and people saying like oh it's so wonderful to have a scientist a scientist as as leader wouldn't it be wonderful we if we had scientists as leaders all the time and i remember um when thinking about this back to a couple of years ago when justin trudeau explained quantum physics uh, on the spot um to that reporter asking a sort of sarcastic question and sort of one lots of plaudits for it so i think in some sectors of the media and in the public at large science is considered a value judgment but taking into mind what you guys said that's maybe not necessarily the right tree to bark up as it were so do you think there's a sort of issue with scientific education there in in making it in sort of dispelling this idea that it's like oh it's good to it's sort of dispelling that it's sort of this big homogenous blob and you can be you can be a scientist and and by virtue of being a scientist in politics you are therefore better um is that is that an education issue so why why do you think why do you think people respond that way have responded that way so i guess personally I, i wouldn't see it as a case of one being better than the other or one being worse than the other but more in sort of appreciation that diversity of viewpoints is valuable when coming to judgments that affect people who are in of, of themselves diverse for, for whatever reason. 
in, in terms of your question, is, is a lack of scientific literacy a problem? I think absolutely. There was an article that appeared uh, a couple of weeks ago about how low levels of healthcare literacy in the UK were making it more challenging for the government to get its message across because people didn't understand why they were being asked to take some of the social distancing measures that they were. So that, that's one way in which that sort of thing has fed into this crisis. I think, again, you're right in that it, it would always be good if the people who are, shall we say, making decisions had a good understanding of statistics and numbers. But that would work both ways, too. It would also be good if all scientists had an appreciation of the, the policy implications of their research, for example. But they don't, and it's not likely that they will anytime soon. So that's why I would say that having the balance of, of opinions is important. But to get that balance of opinions, whether it be in science or in policymaking, you need to draw on people who have different sets of skills and, and come from different backgrounds. Um, well, I agree with Ben that it's more of having a variety of backgrounds in politics. And obviously, we want higher levels of science literacy, uh, even amongst non-scientists. And it would be great if there were more people with STEM backgrounds in Parliament. You know, the, the PPists and the historians are, are fine and wonderful, and we, we want to keep them in, in politics. But a few chemists and physicists and mathematicians and biologists wouldn't go amiss. Uh, as to whether having people with science backgrounds would necessarily improve things, I mean, as you said, Thatcher was the only prime minister that we've had in this country with a science degree, and I'd also say she was one of the worst ones we've had, so no. <laughs> you know, just because someone has a science background doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be better at running the country. Um, obviously, it might help for certain specific issues, and ideally I would want to see more people with science backgrounds in politics, but I don't think it necessarily makes you a better politician or makes you, it puts you in a better position to lead a country. Um, and on the Trudeau point, I believe that he was just fed that by his aides, uh, like before the press conference. But but I think what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at with that is, isn't um, so much the individual politicians themselves, but it's more the wider public response is in with the Trudeau point. It um, perhaps doesn't necessarily matter that that uh, his aides fed him the information, but rather that people liked it and thought it was appealing. And similarly, how people thought it was appealing that Merkel um, think it's appealing that uh, um, Angela Merkel was a chemist. Um, I don't have any specific data available on 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 Thatcher, but um, you know it is as you said it is notable that she remains. Uh, um, I think I think I think that's right. Yeah, the only British Prime Minister to, to have a science degree. So does it does it show does it show that there's still a sort of healthy respect for science within the public at large? Fetishization, maybe. I think in, in polling, scientists tend to be amongst the most trusted group of people, uh, well above politicians and journalists and whatnot. Uh, so, and hopefully that stays the case for a while. Uh, and in a crisis such as this, perhaps the public would gain some comfort thinking that their leaders were scientists and knew how to process the evidence in a more intelligent manner than those with no science background. But that doesn't necessarily have to be just that they're scientists, but also that their leaders are able to understand new information, process uh, new facts and whatnot. Uh, 
you know, I mean, we can just look across the pond to see the consequences of having a leader who obviously cannot process new information and is just visibly inept. So I think part of that is simply being able to communicate science well to the people at large, not necessarily being a scientist yourself. Slightly continuing on this wavelength, um, something which made headlines recently was that Dominic Cummings uh, has been, or maybe hasn't been, um, sitting on uh, SAGE committees um, and making political recommendations um, via there, or, or making rec- not making recommendations, sort of lots of sources are saying lots of different things. Um, what What is your view on this? Is it is it fine and okay and maybe good to have a Downing Street political advisor sitting on um, a scientific committee, or is that is is he would he be interfering if he has been if he has been sitting on it? What, what's your view on that? Yeah, for for the most part, um, I think it's completely inappropriate. There's not really any question in my mind about that that it's that it's just not something that should have happened. It's entirely clear in the code of practice for scientific committees that they, for scientific advisory committees, that they should be politically independent. And I don't understand how having someone who, as far as I can tell, has no expert scientific background in epidemiology or immunology, but is a political advisor, should be at that committee making advice. If he wants to understand what's going on, then it's entirely appropriate for him to read the minutes, to read the discussions or the outcomes of the analysis that SAGE has conducted. But it's not his place to be at that committee because I can almost certainly say that even if he didn't say anything, the very fact that he's there will make people change their behaviour. And that's not what you need in a time of crisis where listening to the scientific evidence is the most crucial thing. So there's no question in my mind that he shouldn't have been there and he shouldn't be there in the future. In, in which case, let's let's talk about uh, something slightly different. Let's talk about um, the media. Um for for you guys, what do you, what do you think of the overall media response to COVID nineteen so far and their and their portrayal of the pandemic? Um, I sort of remember um, a couple of weeks ago there was on, on Robert Peston's um, show uh, he was called out on air by one of his guests for misexplaining um, how antibody tests work and what they do, um, and. Uh, there's been sort of a lot of stuff going on about how the media are now far less trusted as a result of the coronavirus crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you guys think it's been handled well by broadcast journalists and TV journalists? Um, badly? Um, I don't know. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I think that like, like we talk about politics, the fact that there's so few scientists involved in journalism means that unless you get lucky and you you get someone who's really done their research or you're looking at a specialist publication, the quality of scientific reporting could be truly quite shocking. I've I've noticed even in mainstream newspapers who I would normally consider relatively trustworthy sources, um, some real miscommunication and misunderstanding of how fundamental science works. And that's problematic because they're in a position of being trusted and that information, that misinformation is being spread quite quite widely. I think, you know, ideally we would tell them that they need to take more care. Clearly, there's not enough people reading it either, or they're not, um, shall we say, taking on board that feedback to the degree that would be needed. So I'm not sure what the solution is, other than to tell people that if you want medical advice, rely on medical professionals, rely on the advice that you're getting from the NHS or Public Health England, 
rather than resorting to what you see in the newspaper because it, it's been on things like the, the reporting, as you say, of how antibody tests work. I read a, a stunningly inaccurate description in the Times of, of how Im, Im, immune responses work a couple of weeks ago. And similarly, some of the fear-mongering over certain aspects of this, of this pandemic has been quite out of place and, and quite unhelpful, whereas other things which should have been taken much more seriously have been left without any particularly informed or insightful comments. So I think there's a lot of work to do there. And I think media organisations should consider that, again, having a diversity of, of viewpoints and experiences in your reporting is crucial to ensuring that you get across the scientific advice in a way that is it, it is clearly understood. Because this isn't just a case of reporting and there being a mistake in the press. This is, as we've seen in the US, people doing things that are actively harmful because they've seen them reported in the media as having been beneficial when in fact they're absolutely not. May I just add uh, one other point to what Ben said, which is I think uh, a problem with the media coverage as well has been that a lot of it has been covered as a political story. Uh, and we see this in the daily pref press briefings. It's political journalists, not science journalists there. And even though many science journalists don't have backgrounds in science, and you know, even in some decent papers, their science sections are shameful, at the very least you can expect science journalists to know more of the background, the, the bare bones of public health. And a lot of the, public, uh, a lot of the political journalists, frankly, uh, have been playing catch-up this whole time, and a lot of them have been doing so very unsuccessfully. And b building off on that, um, how... With regards to the overall national response to um, COVID nineteen and how uh, how this influenced public behaviour, how um, culpable, I suppose, would be uh, the right word. How 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 responsible do you think? How much responsibility do you think the media should be uh, carrying uh, for that, um, or do you think it's more? Um, it was more it's more an issue of political responsibility residing with Downing Street and the government. I, th I think it's probably a mixture of both. If you want to take yourself to be a trusted news source, then you have to accept some responsibility for reporting on things in a sensible manner. Perhaps some of the media organisations should have been more forceful about sending their science journalists rather than their political journalists to the press conference at the start, though we've seen that change in, in recent in, in recent weeks, which which is a good thing. Um, I fear that one outcome of this pandemic is that everyone will try and abrogate responsibility for the communication of misinformation. We've, we've seen that with social media companies in the past. It's clear that the routes we have for communicating information in a scientific emergency are not good enough at the moment and people aren't understanding why they're being asked to do what the government's asking them to do. And it's all well and good to say once the pandemic is over, it doesn't matter. But we're going to face another pandemic at some point, almost certainly, and there will be other scientific crises that face us, not the least of which will be climate change. So some responsibility has got to be accepted somewhere for doing a better job of communicating science and everything that comes with it from uncertainty to disagreement to the public in a way that they can easily understand and access what's being told. I don't really have anything more to add than that than to say that there needs to be a better avenue to for people to learn about scientific information in a timely manner 
because obviously the uh, most of the press is failing at that, and uh, so are the politicians. And I'm not entirely sure what that would be, to be frank. That seeks nicely into what I was going to ask next about, about well, what comes next after the pandemic. Um, you said you're not entirely sure what uh, what what new channels could exist for um, uh, improving scientific literacy amongst the general population and within the press and within government. Um, but maybe thinking more generally or, or um, thinking less about perhaps what you want to see, but perhaps what you think we could see um, post-pandemic. Um, what lessons do you think we are likely to learn? What lessons do you think we are likely to forget um, from everything regarding this pandemic from with regards to how we've responded to how our institutions have held up um, and all of that kind of thing? Um, ben, what do you think? I think that unfortunately um, politicians will probably be quite happy to forget the role that scientific advice has played in this crisis Mm. and we as scientists have a responsibility to ensure that 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 doesn't happen because we, we will have to deal with other things like this in the future and it would be a real tragedy actually if we didn't didn't learn some of the lessons from that. Mm. It's it, there's no way of getting around it that we had to invent almost on the fly some of the structures for scientific advice to be feeding into government and indeed to be feeding into opposition. And it's not something that should have to happen again. So I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that whenever we're pushing for policy or for how we should do consultation on policy, that we bear in mind that this has happened, this crisis has happened, and that it will be scientists, doctors, nurses who got us out of it. Um, if I may be a bit more pessimistic than Ben, I, I don't, I don't think that we're going to see a, I don't think we're going to see much of a change. Uh, you know, most politicians, I, I still think, don't give a damn about science policy. They don't, and neither do most journalists. I think a lot of them don't think it's particularly sexy or interesting. And it's not like this is the first epidemic in living memory. There, there have been quite a few in the past fifty years that could have any, you know, either localized ones like uh, Ebola uh, or hendrovirus uh, or or SARS, you know, the, the first coronavirus in the 21st century to cause an epidemic, or worldwide ones like AIDS, uh, which people seem to forget was an epidemic. Uh, and there were very few, there, you know, if after those we didn't see much cultural memory, we didn't see long-lasting changes of science policy becoming a major part of political discussions. Uh, If after 30 years of knowing that climate change could destroy human civilization, we haven't seen that part of science policy enter the the heart of political discussion, I'm not sure whether we're ever going to see it, uh, to be perfectly frank. I, I still think Scientists for Labor and other organizations should try to push for more science, uh, science policy being more front and center, uh, to political discussions and for there to be more robust institutions to communicate science. But I just don't think we're going to get those. So both of you are sounding relatively pessimistic um, note about that. So in, in your guys' mind, the various uh, think pieces and predictions which are saying you know, the world will be completely changed after COVID-19, um, is, is that 
is that an oversimplification and over exaggeration in that case could could we perhaps see a world still sort of relatively similar to what we had before um thinking perhaps beyond uh, the issue of um uh scientific um uh, journalism and literacy um specifically um in mentioning the previous pandemics um you talked about the sort of lack of cultural memory which i i really agree with you on um i think maybe a, maybe a difference with this is that it is far it's far more non-discriminatory in that it is um sort of transcends borders it transcends um uh location and geography um obviously boris johnson got it in the most notable egregious um example of that but um but yeah, so 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 would it be fair to say then that um, the world perhaps might not be so radically reshaped as some might think? I think that it's it's maybe a bit of an oversimplification to think about all aspects of, of things in one way. You know, people point to these big sort of step change events, whether it be the 18, uh, 1918 influenza pandemic, whether it be the Second World War. Some of them changed bits of the world dramatically, whereas they left other things slightly unchanged, uh, more or less unchanged even. So we have to sort of perhaps be a bit more granular in our approach. Some things will almost certainly change, whether that be, you know, the demand for international travel, the West relationship with China um, will change, and, and in my personal opinion, probably ought to change a little bit. Other things, like the role of scientific advice, maybe ought to change, but might not change as much as we would hope. And, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't have to go back very far to find events of any sort, whether they be social or scientific, that draw parallels with the current crisis. Uh, and you look at how long the attitude of paying attention to the experts lasted. And it, it doesn't give me great hope. But then again, most of those events have been localised to specific countries or specific regions. And, and hopefully this will lead to a sort of rebalancing of some of the structures that we as sort of socialists would want to see in the world. I don't know, Daniel might have a, a slightly different take on that, but from my point, I'm not sure that we could come to a generic conclusion that it would apply to everything. Yeah, so obviously I, I, the world is more complicated than being able to say event X happened and therefore everything changed, you know. Uh, uh, a lot of things stay the same regardless of the wider changes on Earth and the wider political changes. Uh, and one of those seems to be the long-running distrust of experts that we've seen, you know, for yonks. You know, that I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And the, the nearest parallel to this would probably be, you know, the Spanish flu. I mean, I know that parallel has been drawn 101 times. Uh, but it is worth remembering that, you know, we have this, this plague a century ago that killed more people than World War One, and is now a historical curiosity that might come up in a pub trivia uh, night. And I think that as important as COVID-19 is for us now, I could easily see it becoming that sort of obscure historical factoid with relatively few long-term implications. We've decided in the interest of transparency to make all our briefings and reports public on a, on a rolling basis. So if any of your listeners fancy reading a little bit more into why we might have said some of the things that we said or think that we've misrepresented something that, uh, that they've read elsewhere, they can go um, search those reports and those briefings on our website to 
find links to the primary ev evidence that we've, we've talked about today. And that concludes this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to Daniel and Ben uh, for coming on and talking to me about Scientists for Labour and their work. Um, as mentioned at the end, uh, you can go onto their website and read all their reports and daily briefings that they've been doing. They've really been doing an absurd, um, truly impressive amount of work. They've published six in-depth reports uh, as well as a bunch of their daily briefings, all really worth reading. Do go and check that out that's at scientistsforlabour.org.uk slash covid-19 as always do give us a rate on your podcast app of choice if you enjoy listening to it subscribe if you're not recommend to your friends all that sort of thing and as usual stay safe thanks very much and have a good rest of your week goodbye mm -hmm.